Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. Amen, and good morning. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, In my leisure reading, I've been on an Antarctic exploration and Antarctic explorers kick uh, lately. It's been been a fun read. Uh, It's also been a very chilly read um, in in seeing what those men uh, endured. Uh, During the first two decades of the 1900s, before uh, World War I really drew the the world's attention, uh, nations were racing to reach the South Pole. Uh, a Norwegian by the name of Roland Amundsen was the first to reach the South Pole on December 14, 1911. Uh, he, was late, he was followed about five weeks later by a Brit, uh, um, Robert Scott. And uh, I, can't, I think Scott is in the middle here. I think that one is Scott. Uh, Scott and his party are actually remembered a lot better in, uh, just in, in culture because uh, Scott and his party died. <laughs> Amundsen, the Norwegian, made it back, and he was smart. He brought skis and uh, sleds. Uh, Scott, the Brit, brought ponies and tractors. <laughs> Not quite uh, the way to conquer Antarctica. Uh, Arguably, probably the most famous Antarctic exploration uh, was the one that actually did not happen. Um, In 1914, just as England was going to war, uh, Sir Ernest Shackleton, who had already made made a name for himself on some of Scott's earlier expeditions and his own uh, polar explorations, uh, Shackleton set off to be the first person to cross Antarctica. Uh, However, his plans changed. His ship, the Endurance, got stuck in the sea ice surrounding Antarctica after spending the winter there on their boat stuck in the ice. The crew was forced to abandon the Endurance because the pressure of the ice was uh, cracking the ship and breaking it up. And so it began to sink. And the the men, 28 of them in total, plus all of their dogs, uh, spent the next six months floating on this ice flow. Uh, but as the weather warmed up, what happens to ice? <laughs> it starts to melt, right? And eventually that ice flow got smaller and smaller and smaller, and they were forced to uh, jump into their lifeboats. They had three lifeboats that they had salvaged from the Endurance, and they sailed in, in those three lifeboats to an unhospitable, uninhabitable, unvisited island called Elephant Island. I guess there's a picture of Shackleton uh, sitting on the right, and that's uh, the patient's camp that they set up on the ice there. Uh, But they they got in their boats, and they sailed to this unhospitable island, uh, Elephant Island. And from there, Shackleton and five others set out on, uh, again, a 20-foot lifeboat uh, to make a journey to South Georgia Island seeking help. South Georgia Island is over 900 miles away from Elephant Island, again, in this 20-foot lifeboat through the roughest of seas in sub-zero weather. (laughs) There was no guarantee and there was little chance that they would make it. 
While Shackleton was at sea, he left his second in command, a man by the name of Frank Wild. There's Frank in the bottom corner there. Uh, he left Frank Wild in charge of the 22 men uh, who remained behind on the island. It was Wild's job to keep these men fed, healthy, and sane. It was no easy task. They knew that it would take Shackleton at least two weeks to make the journey to South Georgia Island and to the whaling station there, and then a few days for the rescue ship to return. But three weeks later, no ship came. Still, they waited for rescue, but, but the ship did not come. The days and the weeks added up. The weeks turned into months, and the men began to fear that Shackleton hadn't made it, that his ship had capsized, and that Shackleton had perished along with their only hope of rescue. But as they waited for rescue, each morning Frank Wilde would roll up his sleeping bag, pack his few meager belongings into a bag, and say to the 21 other men on the verge of desperation, roll up your sleeping boys' bags, the boss may return today. Wilde's hope was infectious, as, as I think he meant it to be. Uh, the one truth that kept those men sane as they waited was that today, maybe today, the boss would return. Roll up your sleeping boys' bags. <laughs> Roll up your sleeping bags, boys. <laughs> the boss may return today. This passage of scripture that I want to study this morning looks forward to the hope, to, oh, to the glorious hope and the return of Christ. As the... Apostle John writes to the church, he reminds them of some of the wonderful truths and present realities and, and glorious future promises. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, where we'll be reading the last couple of verses of chapter 2 and then and moving in to chapter 3. Would you rise with me as I read 1 John chapter 2, beginning at verse 28, reading in Jesus' name. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Heavenly Father, Lord, again, I thank you for this morning. Thank you for the chance to gather together in your house with your people, uh, hearing from your word, worshiping you. Lord, And we ask that you give us uh, open ears and open hearts to your word today. And Lord, we, we look forward to that, to that day, uh, someday when you are coming back. And we, with eager expectation and eager longing, anticipate that day. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I mentioned that this text has both some, some present realities and also some future promises. One of the present realities we find is that we are called to abide in Christ. John says in verse 28, And now, little children, abide in him. 
And, and abide is one of those Christianese terms that we often hear and sometimes use without really fully grasping or even thinking about what it means. The word abide uh, is the Greek word meno, and it means to remain or to abide in, to live in, to reside in, to stay in some place. Right now, you live in, you abide in, you remain in Minnesota or North Dakota if you're on that side of the river, right? Uh, and practically speaking, to abide, to remain, to live in Christ means that he is your savior and that you are resting in his finished work on the cross for you. Abiding in Christ means that you are also growing, whoa, daily in his grace and in his truth. It must be when I just turn on this side. They don't want me to look at you this morning. <laughs> Abiding in Christ describes a, a close, personal, uh, intimate picture of our relationship with Jesus, with our Savior. So close, in fact, that as Christians, we, we draw our strength from him. And Jesus later on, or earlier, I guess, uses the analogy of grapevines to picture our relationship with him. And in John 15, he says, I am the vine, you are branches, whoever abides I in him. It is he that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Just as, a, as branches of a vine or a fruit tree are, are totally dependent upon that vine or that stock for their nourishment from the soil, uh, so too are, are we as Christians totally dependent upon Jesus. He is our source of nourishment, our source of strength, our source of help. If we were to be removed from him, we would wither, we would perish. And so John says, abide in Christ. And it's important to remember that, that abiding in Christ isn't a second tier of Christianity that helps distinguish the holy people from the rest of us ordinary common Christians. Uh, to be a, be a follower of Christ is to abide in Christ. You don't have to abide harder or, or abide better in Christ. Acknowledge that we are called to grow in righteousness, grow in holiness, and that process of sanctification is, is, is continual. It's a, it's a never-ending process that the Lord continues to do in us. But abiding in Christ speaks of our justification, that one-time judicial declaration of God that declares you to be not guilty of your sin in Christ. To abide in Christ is to be a Christian. And as we abide in Christ, we remain mindful of the reality that Christ is coming back. And I hope you picked up on that reality and that future hope uh, as I read these verses. John makes repeated mention of Christ's return throughout this letter. And in fact, in these five verses that we read, there are three references uh, to Christ's return. Two of them are found in, in the first verse we read, verse 28. When he appears, John said, and at his coming, the reality of Christ's return was fresh on John's heart. And the word that John uses for Jesus' return, uh, his coming, in verse 28, is the Greek word parousia. And there you see it on the screen there. And it simply means to arrive or to visit. Uh, my parents came up from Sioux Falls this week and weekend and para their grandkids. 
But in the technical sense of the word, parousia became the official term for the visit of a high-ranking official, uh, like a king or the emperor, to the local province. The king is parousiaing to our neighborhood. Let's get everything ready. And I think that as John talks about the return of Jesus, I think he's got that official declaration, that official uh, technical term for for in mind. The king, our crucified and risen Savior King, is returning. He is coming in glory. And this is, however, a reality that I think that we often forget. Sure, we know his promise to return, and we even acknowledged it uh, this morning already as we said our confession of faith. I believe that, uh, that he will come back again to judge the living and the dead. But we can get so bogged down, can't we, in the, in the mundane, ordinariness of life that we sometimes forget Jesus' promise to return. There are dirty diapers that need to be changed. There are work around the house that needs to get done. There's tests and papers that need to be completed for school. Endless projects at work distract your, your, your mind, drawing your attention. And we can get so lost in these things They can take up so much of our attention that we get, again, bogged down by them. And we forget the reality that, yes, Christ is coming back. Or also, as so often happens, we begin to think that, yes, Jesus is coming back. But it hasn't happened in 2,000 years. It probably won't happen today either. But each and every day that passes is one day closer to his return. I think we need to have the the optimism and the attitude that that Frank Wilde possessed as he waited for Shackleton to return, waited for their rescue. Roll up your sleeping bags, boys. Uh, The boss may return today. And our boss, our Savior King, will return one day. Maybe today, maybe tomorrow, maybe 500 years in the future. But we trust that he is coming back. And John says that Christians can have confidence Confidence. We can confidently abide as we wait for his return because of what he has done for us. Look at verse 28 again. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back in shame from him at his coming. Confidence. Confidently abiding. Confidence is, is the healthy sibling of pride. Uh, pride focuses squarely right on the self and what I have achieved and what I am capable of doing. Confidence, on the other hand, ha- has no arrogance or conceit attached to it. Confidence is humble. Confidence is strong. We can be confident at his return. Not because we are confident, right, that we're such good people. That would be arrogance and pride. But we can be confident because of what he has already done for us. And what has he done for us? What has he done for you? How can you be confident? Well, because at his first coming, right, your Savior King, Jesus, gave himself for you. He gave his life in exchange for yours. He died on the cross in your place and on your behalf. He paid the price for the sins that separated you from God. He was risen from the dead in order that you might be justified before God. He made the way for you to enter heaven and eternal life. And when you believe in him, when you receive this wonderful news, The Lord makes you his child through faith. We're going to return to that thought of child later on. You are his. And therefore, believer, you can be 
triumphant at his return. You have nothing to fear. The one who loves you and gave himself up for you is your confidence. You don't have to fear his return or his judgment. But John does acknowledge that there will be those who do shrink away in fear at his return. And these who shrink shrink away in shame are those who have not trusted in Jesus, not abided in Jesus, those who are not believers. And they are right to fear his return because the return of the boss isn't a glorious rescue. But instead, it's an execution of judgment. On that day, on the day of Christ's return, he will separate the sheep, those who are abiding in him, from the goats, those who are not abiding in him. One group, the sheep, will be ushered into eternal life, while the other group, the goats, will be ushered into eternal death and damnation, everlasting torment for their sins. For those who are not abiding in Jesus, is a return of judgment. And this is why we need to be active in sharing the message of the gospel, the good news that our Savior King has paid the price for you, for your sins. I'm sure there are people that you rub shoulders with on on a daily basis that don't know the good news of the gospel. They've never heard, so they can't believe. Who do you know that needs to hear this good news, Uh, the good news about Jesus' death for them? I pray that the Lord would be laying that person on your heart and that this week maybe you would be able to reach out to them and talk to them about Jesus, about the soon returning Savior King who died for them. There's a second wonderful present reality that Jesus points us to in this text. In chapter 3, verse 1, we are called children of God. Look at that again. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Believer, you are called a child of God. What has made you a child of God? John says it's his love. God's great love for you in Christ Jesus has made you his child. We briefly touched on that earlier, but John just can't help himself. Uh, Just like he he has to let his mind dwell on the truth that Jesus is coming back, he continues to rejoice in the fact, in the truth that we are his children because of what Jesus has done for us. His death on the cross is what allows you the right to become the child of God. And as God's child, you are given certain rights and certain privileges, the blessings and the benefits, the the rights and the privileges of being a child of God are immense. Uh, We could go through a number of them, but let's look at this one. As children of God, we are part of his family, the church, right? He he promises us a home in heaven, eternal, uh, never-ending. As the children of God, we are, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And as his children, we are led by the Spirit. Paul says in Romans 8.14 that all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. His Spirit dwells within us, providing us with direction, with comfort, with strength for our lives. As children of God, we become co-heirs with Christ. And and everything in God's kingdom that, that God has promised Christ, He promises to us. And that's a wonderful promise. But one of the most probably amazing things about being a child of God is that we have access 
full and free access to God and to his throne. We have access to the Father. When we pray, we are ushered directly into the throne room of heaven. There's a, there's a story told of a little boy in, in London in the 1800s who, who wanted to visit the king, uh, but the gates were closed and, and he couldn't get into the palace. And, and the guard told him, obviously, right, that you just can't come in and see the king, right? Nobody does that. But then a well-dressed man comes along and asks the boy, you know, what's the problem? Why, why are you sad? And the boy says, well, I want to see the king. And the gentleman said, well, that's easy. You just come with me. And the man took the little boy's hand and, and led him into the palace to see the king. And as they're going into the palace, all the guards are, are jumping up and snapping to attention and, and saluting because you see the, the little boy had taken hold of the Prince of Wales' hand, the man who was the king's own son and would they one become king? Would they one become the king? Uh, the prince, the king's own son, had access to the father and that gave this little boy access as well. And as children of God, we have the right to access the throne room of God at any time. Our intermediary, Prince Jesus, has already opened the way to the throne room through his own blood. As God's children, we have full and free access to the Father and to his throne room at any time you need. You are a child of God. Don't forget that. So far, we've, we've touched on two present realities that we are called to abide in Christ and that we are called to be children of God. And then there's a glorious future promise that we need to talk about as well. At the return of Jesus, we will be made like him. Look at verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears... We shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. John starts off by reminding us, because, <laughs> because we are so prone to forget. He, he starts off reminding us of our, of our present position. Uh, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And there's an emphasis in this verse, not only on, on the absolute truth that we are God's children, but there's an emphasis on the temporal aspect of it, the, the timing aspect of it, now. It's a, it's a little three-letter word, and sometimes we just kind of gloss over it, but it's hugely significant. Now, right now, as you sit in this pew this morning, believer, you are a child of God. As you go throughout this week, a week full of ups and downs, you are God's child as you watch the news and hear of the continuing pandemic and more riots, you, you become anxious, worried as a result. But don't forget, even right now as you do that, you are God's child. Don't forget that truth. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a famous uh, Welsh preacher, actually, and author, wrote in his book uh, simply called The Children of God. He says, I do feel that this is perhaps the greatest weakness in all the Christian church that we fail to realize what we are or who we are. The greatest failure in all the church is forgetting who you are in Christ. You get so bogged down in all the muck and the mire of what's right in front of us <laughs> that we cannot see who our Father is. 
We're like the prodigal son, right? The, the man who took his inheritance, ran away from the father, lived recklessly. We're like the prodigal son in that we are sitting in the pigsty, eating the pig's food, forgetting who our father is. We've, we've failed to realize the significance of who we are. We are children of God with all of the rights and the benefits and the privileges that go with it. See what kind of love the father has loved us that we should be called children of God. We are children of God in the here and in the now. And our present position as God's children also leads us to our future hope. Our future hope is that when Jesus Christ comes, when he returns, we will be like him. John says again, what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. As John contemplates our future hope, our, our eternal and glorified condition, he says, what we will be has not yet appeared. Here John is talking about eternity. He's talking about the afterlife. He's talking about heaven, the new creation, and new heavens, new earth. What will that be like? Inquiring minds want to know. And some theologians have called this verse John's apostolic ignorance. <laughs> apostolic ignorance. Fancy terms for John didn't know, right? But if John, if John is ignorant, it's only because the Lord chose not to reveal to, to, to John or to any other disciples what eternity would be like. I'm sure they had many discussions that weren't recorded in the Gospels, and I'd be willing to bet that that conversation did come up as they're sitting around eating dinner together. What's, what's eternity going to be like? What's heaven going to be like? What's our, what's our future glorified self going to be like? <laughs> and I'm I'm sure that when they asked, Jesus just smiled and said, I'm not going to tell you, but I know you're going to like it, right? And so John says, what we will be like has not yet appeared. We don't know what we will be like. It hasn't been revealed, but again, our, our minds want to know, and I think it's, it's okay to, to, to wonder, to know. It's good to speculate on what eternity will be like. And if, if the Lord had revealed exactly, though, what eternity would be like to us, I think it would lose some of, the, some of the mystery, some of the wonder. I think we would still long for it, don't get me wrong. Uh, eternity won't be a disappointment. Uh, but if we knew exactly what it would be like in eternity, uh, in the new creation, some of that wonder, some of that excitement uh, would probably be dampened. We do get a couple of glimpses, however, of what eternity will be like in Scripture. Uh, these verses from Revelation, Revelation chapter 21. Uh, John, again, writes, he says, I saw a new heavens and a new earth, for the first heavens and the first earth had passed away. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. I love these verses. God will completely remake heaven and earth. The things in this life are just a shadow of what is to come. In the new creation, God will be there dwelling with us. There will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more crying, no more mourning, no fear of death hanging over you. And I think that's going to be one of the most interesting aspects of eternity. No fear of death. 
Could you imagine all the stuff you might be willing to try <laughs> if you knew that you might not die after it, right? <laughs> I've, I've, I, I want to go skydiving, but I have that fear that that parachute won't open and that will be the last thing I do, right? <laughs> but maybe in eternity I can go skydiving without the fear of death, right? <laughs> we don't know exactly what eternity or eternal life would be eternal life will be like. We don't know what our future glorified bodies will be like either, but we do know this truth. Uh, John says that we will be like him. We will be like him. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul puts it this way. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even subject all things to himself. We will be like him. Not in rank or position, but being like him means that our bodies, our resurrected bodies, will be imperishable like Christ and that he will never, we will never die. We will be made like him. And this hope, this, this hope of eternal life, this hope of being like him, is a hope that guides us throughout our lives, but, but especially as we get near the end of our lives. Um, last weekend at the campus days of our Free Lutheran Bible College and Seminary, um, Pastor Adam Orger, who serves as dean of the school, uh, shared the story of his father. Uh, his dad was a Christian, but when his dad was in his late 50s or early 60s, he developed uh, dementia and uh, completely um, lost his mind. But before that dementia had, had really fully set in, uh, Adam's dad memorized this verse, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. And it became his life verse, his hope. He would repeat it to himself constantly. And even as the dementia began to wear away his mind and, and took his mind, he would continue to repeat this verse. But towards the end of his, his life, he could only remember two words of that verse. And he would walk around repeating the phrase, like him, like him, like him. Right? It's all he could repeat. That hope, that trust, that confidence guided uh, Mr. Osier right through the valley of the shadow of death, right until death's door itself. And now Mr. Osier is changed and is like his Savior. We shall be like him. What a wonderful hope. What a wonderful promise. I started this morning with the, uh, with the story, again, of Ernest Shackleton, right? The, the endurance, the, the hope, the confident hope that Frank Wilde possessed, right? Roll up your sleeping bags, boys. The boss may return today. And I, I left those men stranded on that island on purpose. I, I didn't want to rescue them too quickly. <laughs> for those, those 22 men who were stranded on Elephant Island, rescue came for them just at the right time. They had waited not days or, or weeks uh, but months for Shackleton to return. Uh, after Shackleton landed on, on South Georgia Island uh, which, for help, which is an incredible story in and of itself, uh, the boss made three separate rescue attempts uh, using boats from actually three different governments uh, to try to get to his men, but he was thwarted each time because the island was surrounded by ice and they couldn't get within 100 miles of it. Uh, but finally, on, on a fourth attempt, four and a half months later... <laughs> Shackleton said after he set out to rescue his men, the ice cleared and they were able to, to come close and to rescue the marooned men. And for those men on Elephant Island, the rescue could not have come at a better time. When Shackleton returned, they had four days left of food. <laughs> 
I cannot imagine waiting, anxiously waiting, right, four and a half months to be rescued, not even, not even knowing if help is coming, not even knowing if your food is going to make it, right? But what kept, them, what kept them going, what kept them sane was looking for the return of the boss. Roll up your sleeping bags, boys. The boss may return today. And Christian, we have even more of a confident hope and assurance. Jesus is coming. He is coming to rescue us. It may be today. It may be tomorrow. It may be in a week. It may be in 500 years, well after we're gone. But be ready. Roll up your sleeping bags. The boss may be coming today. Jesus, I do thank you for your promise to return. I do thank you that you are with us through every storm of life and that you will be with us uh, through every trial that we go through this week. And, and Lord, as we, should you tarry, right, as we go through this week and, and kind of the mundane in and out, work and school and life and busyness, help us to never lose sight of the fact that you are coming back. It may be today, it may be tomorrow, maybe in a long time, Lord, but we, we do rejoice in that fact and we do look forward to the day that you do come and take us to be with you. Uh, it's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Amen.